0: The Lymphoma Voices podcast brings you a series of conversations around topics of interest for people affected by lymphoma, the fifth most common cancer in the UK. Hello, I'm Anne from Lymphoma Action, and I'm joined today by Giles Andre. Giles is a poet, author, and illustrator who created The Purple Ronnie Stickman, Man, and is also the author of many children's bestsellers, including Giraffes Can't Dance and Rumble in the Jungle. You may also know him as Edward Monckton. Giles is joining us to talk about his experience of Hodgkin lymphoma, which he was diagnosed with in 1988 during his last year of university. Hello, Anne. Giles, can you give us some background about your time at university, what you were studying?
1: I was at Oxford University and I was studying English, which is about the only thing I had any any proficiency for.
0: And in your last year, can you explain how you suspected something was amiss.
1: Yes, it was a sort of growing awareness really. And I began, I remember noticing that I was sort of much more tired than usual, but obviously as a student, you know, being tired is really almost part of your job. And I became aware, I think quite gradually of a a lump in my neck, just above my collarbone on the left-hand side. And it started off quite small. And, and would grow really quite rapidly. I mean, probably from the size of a pea to perhaps a, a small plum or something. Um, and I didn't think much of it to begin with, although I was a, a little bit concerned that the that sort of growth happened quite quickly, but then it, it would it would go down as well. So it, it would go up and down a bit like a sort of yo-yo. And I, I developed this sort of habit of just sort of feeling it. And a, a flatmate of mine actually said, um, you know, noticed that my hand was always around my neck and asked me what was going on. And it was probably the first time I became properly conscious of this thing or or it really entered my sort of my thinking properly. Um, So I was kind of monitoring it, not paying a great deal of attention to it, because obviously the last thing you think when you're 22 years old is that, you know, any lump might be cancer. But I also started sweating quite badly at night. And in fact, I, (laughs) I bought a uh, a new bed to me, but it was actually from the junk shop next door to my house. And it had a bright blue mattress and I had white sheets. And I remember waking up one morning, and there was practically the the imprint of a of a man on my sheet because I'd sweated so much that the dye from the mattress had come through on the sheets and um, I felt very tired. So that's when I, f- I first thought something might be wrong and and um, and booked an appointment with my GP.
0: And what was the result of the appointment
1: with your GP? The, my GP, I, I think perhaps I had to have a, you know, first of all he said, well, let, you know, let's keep an eye on it, come back in a couple of weeks. So I did, and said if anything things were a bit worse, and I was feeling um, a bit worse. Actually, the the most noticeable symptom by then really, or the the, the strangest thing was was the uh, immense fatigue, and the GP, I think on my second visit, sent me to see an ear, nose, and throat specialist, as I suppose well you might if there's a a sort of lump in your neck. And, and don't forget, obviously, I was I was very keen for n- nothing to be wrong and not to have to en- spend any more time on this than I had to because, to be honest, I was very behind on my revision anyway for my finals. So I kind of really needed to spend that term revising. Anyway, I went to the, the ear, nose and throat specialist um, to see if he could uh, establish what might be wrong. He decided really quite quickly that I'd grown a gill like a fish. I, I don't know whether you've ever heard of this before. I've never heard of it yeah. before or since. He had this theory that as embryos in the womb, uh, we we have a, a, a very rudimentary gill system to breathe through the amniotic fluid. To be honest, I've actually never checked whether or not th- this is correct. I mean, it could get probably completely wrong. But And I went to see him a number of times. And in the end, I, I became a bit of a celebrity in his clinic because he would get his medical students in to see me when I came in and say okay Giles describe your symptoms and I describe them and then all the medical students would give my neck a good feel and almost to a person they would say well it, it feels like he's probably got some kind of tumour and the, the the ENT specialist would then reveal his, his um, great piece of knowledge which is no no, no it's obviously not a tumour it's a gill he's growing a gill um and and i then just friends and people i knew and relations would sort of mention quite often that the symptoms sounded quite similar to someone or, or others um tumor or cancer you know wherever that might be this whole thing of sweating and i wasn't eating that well by this time um and i was losing weight and i was pretty skinny anyway so i i began to think god maybe this is some sort of cancer thing but of course again you don't really challenge specialists eventually though one appointment I had with him I said look I keep hearing that this you know people I mean I don't know they don't know but people seem to keep mentioning cancer and very reluctantly he said okay we'll we'll do a biopsy so he stuck a needle into the lump in my neck and I went back a few days later and he was looking pretty sheepish and he said oh yes yep you're quite right it's it's a thing called Hodgkin's lymphoma which was quite a shock.
0: Gosh, and how how did you feel at the time? What were your emotions? What were you thinking?
1: Do you know, I think it, it was quite a sort of mixture of emotions. I should start by saying it's obviously pretty damn frightening when, when you know that you've got something, when the term cancer starts being applied, it comes with a, a genuine fear. But because I didn't have any real, Credence in this di- you know, this diagnosis of, um, of having grown a gill, um, and because it had gone on so long, to be honest, there was a, something of a sense of relief. I did feel once I'd got over the shock, okay, great, now we really know what it is, we can really start to treat it and to try to get better. And it's only when you get that diagnosis, however terrifying it is, until then you're obviously getting worse until you know what's going on you're getting worse on the day you get your diagnosis you can begin to prepare to get better and you know the earlier that is the the shorter that process of worry is and the more you can apply yourself to to get better
0: yeah and did you manage to sit your finals at that stage or did they have to be put on hold
1: I was not at all prepared I'm ashamed to say I hadn't done anything like enough work what's interesting about it is that um it does put everything else into perspective. And suddenly what seemed like such a huge mountain to climb doing these rather terrifying exams that I was ill-prepared for, just completely faded into the background because my job then was really to to live, mm. um, which is really the, the, the most important job you have. There, there was quite a lot of toing and fro with the examiners, whether or not they would uh, give me some kind of degree or whether I'd have to come back the following year. In the end, I sat, for three of them, and did about an hour's worth of work of, of the three hours for each exam before I felt too sort of sick to yeah. carry on. But also, my, my very first dose of chemotherapy was on the morning of my very first exam, which was in the afternoon. Mm. So I, I went into, I went into chemotherapy at nine in the morning on a Monday, and went to, began my finals at 2 p.m. the same day. Oh my
0: goodness. And can you explain what treatment you were given?
1: Because this specialist had become so obsessed with it being a a gill, they actually diagnosed the lymphoma extremely late. Um, And in fact, he told me he he didn't want, I mean, this is perhaps common, but that he really didn't want to delay even for a day more than we had to Mm. on starting the treatment. And because it was quite late, it was it was a fairly um, intensive course of chemotherapy. I can't remember what it was, but the uh, sorry, what I haven't said was there was also a delay, because when again this wouldn't happen, nothing like this would happen now. The protocols will, will be so much better. It, the, the the chemotherapy was administered through a line in 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 the back of my hand, and he had put the needle in and was about to begin um, the induction of of the drugs. And it was, I I promise you, I still find this astonishing, but it was only once he put the needle in that he said, by the way, this is probably likely to make you infertile. And and I'd always grown up with, I've got a big family. My father had seven sisters and they've all had children and we've kind of all grown up together. So I've always had a, a real fondness for, well, people of all ages, but particularly children. I mean, it's no, it's not by chance that I'm now a children's author. Mm. So even at the age of 22, I was absolutely devastated to be told that I probably wouldn't be able to have children. And at the time they were called test tube babies. I was vaguely aware of, of, of this test baby thing. So I said with the needle in my hand, can't, can't I you know can't you store your sperm or something like that? And he said it's very unwise. We, we mustn't delay this. You're in a pretty compromised state already as far as life expectancy is concerned. And it would be dangerous. And then he said, besides, I don't know where to send you. Again, th- this will be completely different now. I said, I'm, I am not agreeing to this treatment until you've looked into this. And it was a bit of a standoff. Eventually, he went, okay, all right, I'll have a go. And he ran me a couple of days later and said, look, I, I don't know what you'll think of this. But, but the best I can do is I found a, an agricultural facility. W- what's, what's an agricultural facility got to do with anything? And he said, well, it's sort of for, for storing um, prize bulls semen. <laughs> I, well, I, I guess I thought, well, if it's good enough for bulls, then it's good enough for me. Um, so uh, w- we paused the treatment and I spent the next two weeks going to, to mm. this facility to make my contributions every two days before my finals. He, he wanted me to go once and I said, well, if this is my only chance, I just want to make sure I, I've stored as much as I possibly can for any eventuality. So I went six times.
0: Did they explain where it was going to be stored, Giles?
1: Th- they told me it would be stored in, in liquid nitrogen canisters at their facility because it was such a young science they said well first of all we have to make sure that there's not no point in doing this in other words that you do have some live sperm because again the disease may have already compromised my health generally anyway so the the first time i went actually my father took me which was quite an interesting conversation in the car on the way us both knowing what was about to happen The, the guy who was in charge of the treatment when we arrived he gave me this um little pot and said look this isn't a proper human facility this is the, be- the best we can do is this pot and a fairly clean staff toilet were his words and the only chair for miles around was about two feet the other side of the door so my, my father was sitting should we say four feet away from me when i was in the process of should we say producing my contribution towards my family so that's a whole another level of orcs as my children would say. Very
0: definitely and presumably this was before you know fertility treatment was generally available and discussed prior to to treatment for cancer.
1: Yes I I mean it, it would of course be extremely well managed now but it was it was so unusual at the time that my specialist chemotherapy doctor didn't know where to send me when they'd established that that there was some live sperm that was worth storing. He then said, of course, there's no guarantee, obviously that it'll work when you do go for fertility treatment, if you do. And if it does, you've probably got three years, five years at the very outside after, after which it will be, it will be dead. It will be useless. So age 22, I was Mm -hmm. told that if I wanted to have a family of my own, I had about three years between three and five years to to create that family so that obviously makes you I mean it it actually strangely didn't affect my behavior that much because you meet who you want to have a family with when when you meet them I mean it's you know you can't say right I'm going to get married in six months without knowing who to and I say get married have a family but all the time there was that strange pressure in the back of my head you know how how this very short time frame that I had potentially to create a family.
0: Can you fill us in on, on how the story went?
1: Well, I was 22 and, um, you know, had the same sort of feelings, shall we say, as everybody else aged 22. There aren't many subjects too far from your mind at that, um, at that age. I, I was obviously weak for, for quite a few months, but then, you know, I did what everybody else did. You go out and try and find partners to have fun with. Sorry, what I should say, is after the treatment had finished and after I finally was properly all clear i was then infertile so my semen was tested every six months or something uh, for two reasons firstly obviously to see whether or not i could have a family naturally but secondly of course there's the practical point about contraception and contraception you know is usually used for two purposes one in order to avoid pregnancy and two in order to avoid disease The pregnancy thing was kind of interesting because I knew I didn't need to use contraception.
0: Yeah, and you did eventually go on to have children, I believe. But presumably that was not in that time frame.
1: I eventually was lucky enough to find somebody who I wanted to have a family with and, and was even luckier in the fact that she seemed to feel roughly the same way. She was actually a friend before we started dating. But we're talking eight, nine years after my sperm was stored um she like me had grown up with a passion for children she'd been a a children's teacher a primary school teacher in the West Indies and she knew that she was you know going to attempt well to spend the rest of her life with me not knowing whether or not we could have our own children which was a hell of a brave decision for her and (laughs) we we had to go through the mechanics of, you know, right, let's start. I mean, to, I have to say, when we did get together romantically, I think we were engaged within four months and married within six months. So we, we weren't gonna hang around once that decision was made. And we went together to Filton, to this place. I mean, not really having had much contact with them for the last nine years, um, but yes, they did have, they did still have these, so called apples, the vessels that they're storing and they had quite a few and we had this peculiar situation where we turned up at filton and collected a large canister of liquid nitrogen they wouldn't send the sperm to us they probably did for insurance reasons but you know th- they wanted to make sure that there was no liability if anything went wrong yeah. so w- we drove to filton we strapped the canister of liquid nitrogen into the back seat of the car with a seat belt kind of like it was a, like it was a child and drove to London and took it to a clinic in London where we were going to um to attempt to have our family and we tried first oh gosh I can't I'm not sure I can really remember the technical terms IUI is it called which is uh, more colloquially referred to as the, the turkey based uh, method yeah. so of course I I mean sorry I should say it you know there was just delight all around when they started defrosting my, my semen and discovered that at least some of it was pretty weak, mm. but some of it was worth attempting to use. But that method didn't work and the IVF didn't work. But we were really lucky. I, um, it, it, it didn't take t- too many cycles and eventually my wife became pregnant and it was just extraordinary. Mm. Amazing. <laughs> because it was so weak, actually. I mean, thank goodness I, I stored quite a lot of it. We then had a further pregnancy a couple of years later and had twins. This was when, at the time, I I know it's changed now, and I I can't remember how many embryos you're allowed to put back, but at the time it was three. Um, So we had a a single, a boy to begin with, and we had twins two years later. And after a first five or six year conversation, we had another go. Actually that didn't work, then we had another go. But by that time, the science had, had improved so much and we're now what 16 years on from when it was stored and my wife got pregnant again and this time the method was was ICSI I I don't know I don't know what it stands for it's ICSI and this this method had been created in between when we had our twins and this new one and essentially in layman's terms you you suck up one sperm into a syringe and inject it into one egg
0: Um,
1: and if you're really lucky that grows into a blastocyst and and then an embryo and so little jackson he's called i say little he's now 15 Mm. he was basically the last surviving sperm
0: in in the in in the in the facility
1: that's
0: astonishing so you have four children what a what a joy yes
1: they're so old now though i mean 20 three down to 15. And the, you know, the reassuring thing, I shouldn't really joke about this, but it, some of them look quite like me. And, and I don't say that's reassuring out of vanity. Uh, I'm just relieved they're not, you know, half bull, half man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so your first yeah. chemotherapy was on your first day of your finals. And then how did yes. that go? And, and how did the treatment go generally?
1: The side effects, I suppose, were fairly standard. I mean, I felt pretty weary. I felt pretty sick. My hair began to fall out. I think my frame of mind at the time was that none of that is important. What's important is that you live. And I suppose I was at an age where, you know, you're fairly gung-ho and, you know, losing your hair can be very traumatic for some people at a certain age. For me, to be completely honest, it was, it was a slightly strange novelty. Because when when you're having cancer treatment and having cancer, age twenty-two, there's this sort of bizarre thing where, first of all, everyone's suddenly very nice to you, which I have to say is is quite nice. <laughs> you get lots of attention, and uh, you know, the, at the time, I wasn't particularly an attention seeker, but I, you know, it's nice people paying attention to you. To be honest, so I wasn't madly bothered by the side effects, and I had, I suppose. I don't remember precisely, perhaps five or six sessions of chemo. I don't know if the milk ground exists anymore, but I'd got a job in advertising to go on to in September after this. And we're now in in July, uh, sort of June. So I was just conscious that I wanted to be better for September to start this career that I only spent about two weeks in, in the end, as as, as it happened. So I spent the summer having chemotherapy and, and feeling a bit weird. Then, then I was given the all clear. Which was great. I wasn't really feeling much better, and then something very strange and weirdly coincidental happened, which was that my mother was at a friend's house and she met somebody there who they just began chatting, and he explained that he was an oncologist, and my mother, just by way of conversation, went, "Oh, that's interesting, because you know my one of my sons." has just uh, been given the all clear. He He's had Hodgkin's disease and he's been given the all clear. And he said, oh, well, that's marvelous. And um, you know, that great news. What, why, why don't you just send him along? I'd, I'd like to meet him just to hear about his experience and perhaps just give him a once over. So I went along a, a week or so later, it's kind of slightly reluctantly. And I don't remember exactly what he did. Um, he must've done some sort of tests or X-rays I think. And he called me back a few days later to explain that far from having been successfully treated and far from being all clear, I I was actually riddled with it. And my my lymph system had been affected much more deeply then than I had originally been treated for. And it had gone down through my chest and, and into my abdomen by this stage. And that to be honest was a was a real shock and i was very upset we'd been told you know by specialist cancer doctors a few weeks before that i was completely clear and i just i i just don't understand how that could have been correct it was absolutely astonishing but then of course by that time it was even further advanced than, than when I was a fishman with a gill. And you know that, <laughs> so it was a slight catalogue of, of peculiar errors, uh, which again, I, I, really feel like I should say, I'm sure, you know, nothing like this could, could happen now. And it was very, very unusual. So then I had to undergo it actually, it was a, an experimental course of chemotherapy. But the treatment was so intensive and so toxic that I had to be fully anaesthetized every time I had chemo. So I would go into hospital. um, They give me a pre-med, see that I was okay. And then completely put me under while the chemotherapy was being administered. So I would, they give me the chemo under anaesthetic. I would, I would come round from the anaesthetic and then It would take a day or two or three days, really, before I regained my senses much at all. And as the treatment progressed, each time I would wake up, I would almost sort of know less and less. And it would take me a while to recognise my family or to remember names. And there was one bizarre incident where I I was treated um, in central London. And I'd noticed my hair was really, you know, I, I looked like a sort of plucked chicken but I managed to escape escape shortly after my treatment from the hospital in a dressing gown and walked all the way from Harley Street to John Lewis in Oxford Street and was stopped by a security guard putting a wig into the pocket of my dressing gown and they had to summon the staff from the hospital and find out what had happened and take me back. But I just had n- no idea what I was doing. I must have just woken up thinking, oh, I want some hair, and somehow managed to get myself to, to wigs in boots.
0: <laughs> must have been a really difficult time for you.
1: Well, I think one, one of the, the, the strangest things is that when you're 22, as I was, or, you know, sort of generally young and haven't had much responsibility, you don't think of challenging authority. Um, If you've got specialists giving you these diagnoses however peculiar you assume of course that they know what they're doing. Yeah you just don't really think of challenging it and I think now if I was told something as odd as you're turning into a fish you're growing a gill I I, I think I would challenge it now but it's it's an unusual thing to be faced with
0: Mm, and I guess something like that like being challenged that you turning into a fish you would google it and see if that's at all possible wouldn't you
1: I think anyone's reaction these days to to any medical symptom is to google it it's so easy and it's so tempting and there's so much information out there a lot of which uh, is extremely useful but I'm really cautious about how google should be used and it's one of the first things I tell young people when they're using, you know, oh, I mean, we all find ourselves going to the doctor and going, look, I've looked on Google and this is what's wrong with me. It's very easy for Google to make you catastrophize when there's really no need. And I found that that practically always you, you can persuade yourself through looking at Google that you're in a far, far worse state than you are just because catastrophe is is really what 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 makes people click things? So I I would advise any young person, of course you're going to look at Google. You can't stop looking at Google, but you really, your specialist, your doctor knows a great deal more about your particular
0: symptoms and where they're likely to lead. And would you suggest to people that if if something doesn't seem right, that they should ask more questions of their medics?
1: Yes, without question. I think people are more used perhaps to, to choice these days than they were 30 years ago you know if you've got something as as unusual as a lymphoma when you're 22 I know it's not you know that unusual you you really become your own project and I think there is some uh, comfort in owning your condition and taking responsibility for it to the extent that you can and and get your family and your peer support system to help you learn as much about what you've got as you can because I know it's an old cliche, but knowledge is power. And I found the more I've known about what's wrong with me, the more comfortable and reassured I've become by it. You know, the the funny thing about having a life threatening illness is, and and I hadn't expected this at all, is really then you become the centre of a lot of attention and where where you feel in a way you have to use your life reassuring people. So you're the one who's ill. But everyone around you feels so utterly helpless, and all, all they really want to hear is good news. You know, there's always it's how are you, and you, you know, you can't you can't you can't say I feel like. well. You can, but you 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 don't want to say I feel crap and everything's terrible and it's getting worse, because it's sort of it's a sort of weirdly embarrassing social thing to do, and people just want to hear oh it's great I'm feeling better the treatment was fine I feel a little bit more perky today, but um yeah you have this strange job of of sort of having to try and sort of reassure people a bit and try to be cheery and sometimes it's the last thing you want to do but but one way in which you can involve your family and your friends is to get them to help you um research and digest information and anything your supporters can do to help um, makes them feel they have some control over what's going on as well
0: and charles you said that um you actually only did the job in the advertising agency for a couple of weeks. Is that because your perspective had changed or had some, what had changed in your life to make that the case?
1: What, what happened was I had this very toxic experimental chemo and it sort of, it left some residual um, disease. It didn't get it all. And, and that probably lasted for five months or something. So I then, I don't remember how long it went on for, but I then had radiotherapy. Um, for a few months, so and, and then I was left so weak by by that entire process, and you're on all these you know steroids and stuff to try to compensate a bit. I then needed to have some months of recovery, and I, I went down to really weighing very little. So it took a year from when I began the job to when I was able to to enter the world again, really. But by that time, I'd already decided I actually hated the job, and. Do you know, I spend my life trying to avoid this cliche, life's too short, but you, you'll all know what I mean. Mm. I wanted to, I didn't want to spend the rest of my life, whether it was going to be, th- you know, six months or five years or 50 years, doing something that I that I didn't really enjoy. So th- the advertising agency, to their credit, were were really good to me. And I, when I began the treatment, I said to them, look, I'm really not sure. I want to come back. And they said, well, you're not in a state to decide now. So will continue to to pay you your salary until you're ready to come back and if you don't want to come back then um well obviously we're going to have to stop um and then yes i didn't actually i'd started this strange um cartoon character purple ronnie
0: Mm.
1: in my last year as well while i was undergoing the treatment so by the time i was better from this sort of second much more intensive course of chemo and radio purple ronnie was sort of up and running and I, I I had the opportunity to focus on that so it's almost like a second career as a cartoonist had, had been kind of growing whilst I was ill anyway.
0: And do we see any of your I don't know experience in Purple Ronnie at all or is was he invented or was he in your mind fairly complete before all this happened?
1: Purple Ronnie I don't know how, how familiar your, your younger listeners will be with it but this was a a sort of a cartoon poet really stick man writing is essentially greetings cards but it then went on to all sorts of you know books and merchandise and toiletries and calendars and all t-shirts and all that sort of thing and so it, it began as actually as a stand-up co- comedian comic not very good <laughs> comedian act while i was at university and it was it was really sort of began with kind of student humor about sort of uh, you know, drinking and sex and uh, general sort of, you know, bawdy behaviour. And, I mean, there was obviously, you know, none of that behaviour really was going on while I was ill. But I think when I recovered, I, I definitely had more of a zest for life and perhaps more of a sense of joy and opportunity. I think there is a lot of that in Purple Ronnie, even though, you know, he doesn't specifically write about, cancer and chemotherapy and fertility and that sort of thing
0: and that joy and love is found in your children's books in abundance isn't it yes
1: i only ever really to be honest want to write about love and happiness i do i do really feel privileged to still be alive to be honest and i do feel massively privileged to be able to enjoy it and to do a job that i love i've I've had clinical depression a couple of times so I also feel incredibly privileged to be able to feel joy again which I think is the most remarkable gift you can have and you you only really know how incredible it is I think when you lose it when you lose your capacity to sense joy and the amazing thing actually about recovering from depression is you you suddenly regain this understanding of what it is to be happy and joyful and to be able to celebrate and to be able to love Mm -hmm. um yeah they're incredible
0: can i ask you another question you very generously allowed lymphoma action to use purple ronnie on our young person's guide some years ago um and i just wondered whether you feel that it's particularly challenging having a diagnosis of cancer when you're young
1: do you know there's a number of ways of thinking of that um I mentioned the fact that I had cancer again which is th- 3 years ago I got colon cancer to be told you have cancer when you're 22 is of course really frightening and very upsetting but I I thought about this a lot when when I was I don't remember spending a lot of time crying or feeling existentially lost or being terrified of dying and and of course the you know the treatment now you have far greater chance of survival and even at the time i think the chance of survival was given to me if i hadn't been diagnosed so late as around about 70 or 75% which is which is good you know but but still not amazing but i really don't remember being massively upset now when i had colon cancer 3 years ago you always well, one when, when you've had some sort of cancer, particularly from earlier, you're always conscious, you're much more conscious of of cancer and perhaps the return of it than than you might be if you if you haven't had that experience. And I'd always thought, after my first experience, that if I get it again, I'll be I'll be noble and brave and reassuring and humorous and rather wonderful, um, and will slip away with great grace and dignity. And everyone will say what a marvellous fellow he was. Well, it couldn't have been further from the truth. When I, when I was diagnosed with colon cancer, I howled. I absolutely lost control.
0: Mm.
1: And I was really surprised. I, I think it was a combination of, you know, I'd already passed go and collected 200. You know, I'd had my one chance and so perhaps I sort of processed the fact that I've had my chance already. Perhaps I felt I had more to live for. I knew who my life partner was. I knew who my children were. I really wanted to see them get older and perhaps have their own families. I was really surprised. The one thing I I really was surprised about having cancer as a young person was that I I wasn't anything like as upset as I thought I would be. But perhaps that's because of my particular circumstances where by the time, you know, there was so much kerfuffle and lack of people really knowing what was happening and so much business of endlessly going to doctors. I mean, it you know, took up a lot of time. Um, Perhaps I didn't have so much time to worry. And then by the time it was finally diagnosed, as I said, there was this huge element of relief that you could then get on with it, own it, show up for the treatment, do your best to get through and stay healthy and stay alive. I think that was more in my head than, oh, God, I'm going to die. How awful and how desperate. In a way, one good thing about having cancer as a young person is I think, first of all, you become more responsible for your own health from a young age. We know much more than we do now about how you can promote the success of your own treatment by eating healthily, exercising healthily, getting enough sleep. We didn't know so much about it then. We knew a bit about it. But... um, you are aware that you're mortal. You're aware that you could get, I suppose, any disease. You're less embarrassed to go to the doctor about things. And, and of course, that's that's really important. And any GP will tell you that if you've got any symptom of anything that is worrying you, go to the doctor.
0: Yeah.
1: There's, you know, this sort of pride, you know, this pride of, oh, I don't, you know, I'm perfectly all right. You know, I'm strong. I'm strong. I'm the man. I don't need to be looked after. Um, You're, I mean, even, you know, I've been to my GP many times when I've got an odd lump or lesion on my skin. In fact, one time it was just a bee sting. But every time you, you know, you turn up and do this thing. Oh, I'm sure it's absolutely nothing. And I'm sure I'm fine. But I, I sort of thought I should come in. And the doctor will always say, of course you should come in. So I I now have um, a colonoscopy, well, now every couple of years, but my colon cancer was only only diagnosed because I thought I ought to have a colonoscopy. And so many men have said, well, why would you go for a colonoscopy if you don't think there's anything wrong? I don't want something shoved up my bum. And the answer is just so simple. It's when you go to a GP about anything, if they then say there's nothing wrong with you, Brilliant, fantastic, and you know. And if they say there is something wrong with you, God forbid they say, actually, I think you might have cancer. Well, thank God you know. And thank God you you know, you know that day. Any any delay in diagnosis of any disease is compromising. So one thing here, yeah, what, what a long-winded answer. One real benefit, I think, of having a, a disease like that as a young person is it makes you take your health seriously. And it makes you be conscious of looking after yourself. And I don't mean by that drinking carrot juice every day and running 50 miles. I mean, take any concerns you have about your health seriously and talk to proper people about it.
0: Charles, the final question we like to ask all our guests
1: is what brings you joy? You know, that's a really simple one for me. And I think one's thoughts on this really crystallise when you do have life-threatening situations. For me, it, it is simply playing on the beach in the sunshine with my family. It's as simple as that. It's family, a close circle of friends and being somewhere beautiful. I think it's such a beautiful planet we live on and I'm lucky enough to spend time on the beach. So it's simple, natural things. Being with my family on the beach, in the sunshine. It's as simple as that.
0: Giles, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you very much for for sharing so much with us.
1: Well, it's been a a pleasure, thank you very much.
0: For more information about lymphoma and the support we can offer to people affected by the condition, please visit the Lymphoma Action website at www.lymphoma-action.org.uk. Lymphoma Action, inform, support, connect.